Thank you so much. Good morning. Love for you now to take your Bibles, and we're making our way once again to Second Thessalonians. And in many ways, what we are looking at today is a sequel to what was covered last week in Second Thessalonians, because what Paul is now doing is he is identifying a particular sin in the Thessalonian church that requires some degree of attention, and evidently it was the sin of idleness. He has not really spoken of any sins thus far among the people, but he's doing so now, and I think there's something to be said for what he has to say in relationship to the time period, the culture that we're in today. What I want to do is to read from verse 6 down through verse 15, even though we covered 6 through 10 last week, 11 through 15 is our focal point this morning, but to put it in overall context, I'll start with verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not as busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, what we want to do this morning is we're looking once again into this whole matter of the work ethic that the Bible has set before you and before me, is to grapple with not only how my work matters to God, but also how God matters in my work. Let me say it again. We're going to be concerned this morning with not only how my work matters to God, you are my work, but furthermore, how God matters to our work, no matter what your type of work might be. And when we begin to think this way, we realize that everything comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything is sacred. We don't divide it into the secular and sacred. And so, if Christ is Lord, he is Lord over the person who is washing dishes at 7 o'clock at night, caring for a child at 1 o'clock in the morning, or tending to a patient at 9 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. Everything is God's. My work matters to God. Now the question is, how does God matter in my work? These are the sorts of questions we're going to be grappling with now as we, as we look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, I want to thank you for each one here. Now in this second of the three services again, 
we want every minute to count in bringing honor and glory to your name. And throughout the morning, there may be those that arrive here, they're spiritually curious about things that matter most, but have not focused their attention upon the one who matters most, the one risen from the dead, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work on the cross, the work of redemption. We thank you, Father, that he didn't treat it lightly, but he approached it, giving everything that he had and who he is. And he died in our place for our sins. And the work of redemption was complete. So, Father, what we want to do is to understand this whole matter of the work that we have in light of the work that, God, you have laid for us. And we want to honor you in all that you are and all that you do. So in these minutes together, Father, what we're praying is that once again you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills, we've come here to see Jesus and him only praying these things again now in Jesus name Amen it's the picture of the missing broom for you see between each and every school year in college and post college education medical school and graduate school and so on I would spend my summers two-thirds working at an auto plant in a factory as a millwright. And what I remember on one particular day, it stands out to me, was that I was putting in a 12-hour shift, and I was nearing the end, and I was working with some metal scraps, and knew it was time to simply sweep them up. I turned and reached for my broom, and it was, the broom was gone. Instead, was one of my co-workers who looked at me and said to me, Gary, you're working too hard. You're showing everybody up. Head off to the locker room. Now, he's not my boss, but I already sense that there's peer pressure at work here. What fascinated me was that that locker room was filled with men who were idling. And if they were not in that locker room, and the foreman typically was not prone to want to go in there for obvious reasons, then they were walking around the factory, the auto plant. We, it was very large, complex to the point that there were speed limits in the aisles uh, as to how fast the carts could go. And as I watched and I observed, there were also those that were simply moving around, attempting to avoid their work. They work very hard at avoiding work, I want you to know. It struck me as something incredibly interesting of what was taking place at that point. Towards the end of that time, every year, then I would leave the auto plant and our family would head up for a month to work on the farm. Um, We would work the fields and the likes. I'd ride and drive the the tractor and bail the hay like everybody else. And what stands out to me is that no matter which way I turned, we always seem to have a tool in our hands. Now, that's not to contrast and not to make a statement about the agricultural versus the industrial worker. 
Well, what stood out to me in that personal experience was that it was illustrating something that Max Weber back in 1904 had written pertaining to what is known as the Protestant work ethic. What his title entailed was the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. He would argue that prior to the Reformation, religion was otherworldly. But what the Reformation did was to teach the doctrine of vocation, that you see religion is to be lived out in this world. So the Reformers like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli emphasized the spiritual dimension of productive labor and in cultural engagement. They would use the word vocation, which was simply the Latinate word for calling, and would argue that vocation is not first about what we do, but rather it's about what God does through us. Now, as I began to ponder that, I realized that this, in essence, is something that the Apostle Paul is now addressing as he spots this culture of idleness that is seeping into the mindset of the Thessalonians. Now, on consecutive Sabbaths, the Apostle Paul had been teaching from the Old Testament, and he would have made his way, of course, to Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. And as he would be working from the Old Testament towards Jesus, he would remind us, for example, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 of these words, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. What God had done then is that he had introduced the 6-1 principle of six days of work and one day of rest. What we find God doing then is that he had introduced highly productive principles of work. God was the only one in this world who could do work without expending energy. When you and I go to sleep at night, we find ourselves needing to replenish our energy levels to do our work the next day. The necessity of sleep is a reminder and a testimony of the fact that we are not God. And so we need this sense of restoration. God did not need to replenish his energy supply, otherwise he would have diminished himself in his creative work and been less than God. God is God. So God alone is able to work without expending energy. So now when I look at that account, I realize, okay, work matters to God. Now the question is, how does God matter to my work? Now, when we are unproductive in our work, we become unproductive in our rest. And when we substitute idleness in the place of work, 
we then substitute idleness in the place of rest. And then we are idling at work and we're idling at rest and then we've got a restless culture on our hands and there seems to be this growing sense of tension then of a lack of productivity. Now, God has instituted this principle. And so in Genesis 2, we would find, for example, in verse 5, that when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. What furthermore interests me is that before marriage was instituted and God brought Eve to man, he taught man the disciplines of work. Adam was working before Eve was introduced. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That was before, in fact, the marriage was even instituted. The disciplines of work were already at the forefront of life. Now, there is this tendency among some people who are dissatisfied with their work to view work as a curse. But what you and I would find, that if we continue working through the accounts in Genesis, that in Genesis 3.15, God did not say, curse it is the work because of you. What did he say? He said, curse it is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, what we find then is a wearied culture and wearied people that are dealing with the infliction of a pain in the whole process of work. But we've got to understand that the curse has not fallen upon the work because you and I are told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, that God worked. And what is interesting in Genesis 2, verse 2, is that we are informed furthermore when he said, it is finished. That has to do with the fact that the work of creation was finished. And now you connected to what Jesus Christ said on that cross, tetelestai, it is finished. And there the work of redemption is finished. But through all this, what you and I find is this matter, this thread, this idea of work. And so when you replace work with idleness, you end up replacing rest with idleness, and neither work nor rest will be productive. They will be highly unproductive, and you and I are left with a very wearied society because they have not followed the basic principles and patterns that God has established for our lives to follow. Now Paul looks at these people then at this point. And he has been teaching them, and that's why we find in verse 11 that he said, we hear that some among you, you see, some among you walk in idleness. Now, the idea here of walk in idleness means to go about looking for a counterfeit, an alternative to work, and looking for a counterfeit or an alternative to rest. And so in this fallen world, people idle in their work and they idle in their rest and they're wondering then, why am I not rested from my work? It's because they have 
bought into the counterfeit that God has already established for us of what true work and true rest is all about. So now Paul has picked up on this. And he knows that the Greek culture was such that there was what was known as an upper tier and a lower tier in matters of work. And the upper tier was those of the philosophers and so on who thought that for them work was simply to be in the philosophical intellectual realm and they would leave the lower tier type work to the laborer, the slaves and so on, the physical realm. And what Paul would do through the resurrection of Jesus Christ after having established that Jesus Christ with his works that it is finished is that he argued for a bodily, a bodily resurrection where the Greeks would diminish the idea of the work of the body. Jesus Christ did his work through his body and then died on that cross bodily and then was risen on the third day bodily. And so what God is doing now is he's showing the sacredness of the wholeness, mind, body, and soul in the way in which we go about understanding lordship in our lives. Now we hear, he said, that some among you walk in idleness, a counterfeit to work. Then he adds this, not busy at work, but busy bodies. It's a play on words in the original. Now you and I are going to find that oftentimes in our work we do not feel valued. But our value is found in our relationship to God and Christ's work. And now we do our work to the glory of God, not for the glory of self. No one knows that better than the one who's now with the Lord, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was for 10 years incarcerated in a gulag during the Soviet Union era. And during his imprisonment, he composed what would be known as One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And in the classic novel, Solzhenitsyn recalls how backbreaking manual labor gave his life purpose. Even with his body stretched to the breaking point, this man who was a physicist in training, he could feel a stab of pride when a gulag communist official looked over the rows of bricks he had laid and then commended him, quote, good line. Unquote. And I think about that when I carry that through on the arguments of socialism and communism, when Walter Sawatsky, in his volume, Soviet Evangelicals Since World War II, told this story of the rain and the likes in the Soviet Union, where he overheard two Soviet factory workers, managers in a Moscow restaurant, And one told the other that party officials were pressuring him to fire evangelicals in his plant. But he would not, because the evangelicals were his best workers. When you look at what you do day in, day out, what is the quality of your work? Is there a sense of productivity or is it just simply busyness and activity? A car idles in the wintertime on a driveway without moving forward. There is activity, but there is not productivity. 
there isn't a sense of movement towards destination. But what you and I have to do is to look at our work in light of the great worker himself and the work of creation and the work of redemption. And now we ponder the significance for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, he tells us. And we begin to ask some tough questions of ourselves with regard to in whom and for whom am I doing this? We're told that after Michelangelo died, someone found in his studio a piece of paper on which he had written a note to his apprentice in the handwriting of his old age. Quote, Draw, Antonio. Draw. And do not waste time. Unquote. At the founding of the reestablishment of Israel in 1948, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion said, we don't consider manual work as a curse or a bitter necessity, not even as a means of making a living. We consider it high human function. As a basis of human life, the most dignified thing in the life of a human being, which ought to be free, creative, and man ought to be proud of it. Well, he's drawing his insights from his Torah, from Genesis. And when you and I ponder that, we realize that, yes, there was work that was done prior to the fall. Thus, work is not cursed, but the ground, in fact, is. And what we have to do is to bring a restorative principle to this fallen world in which we live. For as Paul would also write, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us, you see, to do. Or as he wrote in Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24, and here now children need to see how their parents demonstrate this biblical work ethic. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving, which ought to instill a new sense of passion in our hearts with regard to, and what is my ultimate reason for my ethic? Am I simply drawing it from, from the culture? Or am I drawing it from God? Because what you see is that there is a counterfeit. There is a substitute in the culture for work. It's idleness. And when that takes place, there is a counterfeit in the matter of rest. And that likewise is idleness. And people wonder, and why am I so idling at 2 o'clock in the morning when I'm supposed to be sleeping? But the challenge is when we are unproductive in our work, we are unproductive in our rest. And God understood this. And so he created the 6-1 principle to help us to better understand the life principles that God himself had established for you and for me. And so it brings a new sense of energy based upon our purposes to what we're to be doing. Because as the writer of the Proverbs put it, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. 
But as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer, you see, discreetly, because he seems to have bought into the concept of the idle rather than work, and therefore the idle rather than rest. And then he's wondering, why am I so unproductive in my areas of both work and rest? And he does not feel refreshed, and he feels less of himself as a result because he does not establish the principles that God has already put into play for him. So now, what is God saying to that kind of person? Well, you look now at verse 12. And as you look at verse 12, you and I are told by Paul, now such persons we commend and encourage. And these two words at this point are military terms used by a commander in the midst of challenging his troops you will find similar commands that are found in verse 4, 6, 10, 12, and 14. I think he loves even numbers for some reason at this point. We command and encourage, but notice where? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Not based upon personal preference, but what you and I have to do now is to examine what we do with the time that God gives us because God is the owner of our time, owner of of our energy, owner of our bodies, owner of our minds, owner of our resources, and owner of our responsibilities. And we are managers of all those things. And so we are working for the owner, and we don't want to idle in the midst of it all. So work matters to God, and God matters, you see, in this whole matter of our work. And this is a vocation that God has given you and given me, no matter what we are doing at any given time. We don't vacate from our work. We vocate in our work because the Latin word vocate carries with it the idea of a calling. And so no matter where you are and what you are doing in the midst of your work experience, You are vocating for God, and other people are observing and watching and processing how you go about doing this. And if you find it in a demeaning situation, if you're not getting affirmed in your workplace, then what you are attempting to do, nonetheless, is bringing glory to your God. Because the second member of the Trinity was not affirmed in his work during the course of his days as he made his way even to the cross of Jesus Christ, where people challenged him, even in that final moment, to come down from the cross and save yourself because they didn't consider his work on the cross to be a necessary thing for you or for me. Do this. How? Do their work, according to verse 12, quietly to earn their own living. And you say, but Gary, how do I do my work quietly? Years ago in Pennsylvania, I had gotten done with one service, getting ready for the next, and in between the services, some of my buddies former pro athletes made their way up. One was a former Green Bay Packer linebacker. Another was a former Pittsburgh Penguins hockey player. The third was a backup to John Elway with the Denver Broncos out in uh, Denver. And Ken took the lead, made his way up, and as he was talking, he, he said, we got a question we were talking about because we're retired now from sports and we're looking at a new form of occupation. We might go into it together. And, yeah, we were talking among ourselves in our devotions the other night. 
where it says we are to do our work quietly to earn our own living. Gary, what does it mean to do your work quietly? These guys were thinkers. One of them, in fact, went to Denver Theological Seminary would occasionally speak in my place on Sunday mornings. And I said, Ken, guys, do you remember how in the course of the week, whether it be prior to a football game or Troy, when you would go to the Montreal Canadiens Forum to play hockey, there was that time where you were alone out on the ice or time alone on the football field and you were working your plays. There were no spectators there. There was no volume. Nobody was watching or observing except your coach, and you were working it and working it and working it. Because once you stepped out on the ice, Troy, or once you stepped out on the field, Ken, Kurt, the volume was so loud, you couldn't necessarily communicate with one another. You had to work it out in the quietness of your life. And now you are in the quietness of your lives. You are away from the spectators and out of the arena. You're doing your work quietly and preparing for your God. And then I told them this story. The USS Astoria was the first U.S. cruiser to engage the Japanese during the Battle of Savo Island. It was in 42. A young Midwesterner, signalman in third class, Elgin Staples, was swept overboard by a blast. And the Astoria's number one eight-inch gun turret exploded. Wounded in both legs by shrapnel and in semi-shock, he was kept afloat by a narrow life <coughs> life belt that he was managed that he managed to activate with a simple trigger mechanism. Around 6.00 hours, Staples was rescued by a passing destroyer and returned to the Astoria, whose captain was attempting to save the cruiser by beaching her. The effort failed, and Staples, still wearing the same life belt, found himself back in the water. It was lunchtime. Picked up again, this time by the USS President Jackson. He was one of 500 survivors from this battle. On board the transport, Staples, for the first time, closely examined the life belt that had served him so well. It had been manufactured by Firestone Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio, and bore a registration number. Given home leave, Staples told his story and asked his mother, who also worked for Firestone, about the purpose of the number on that belt. Listen to this. She replied that the company insisted on personal responsibility for the war effort and that the number was unique and assigned to only one inspector. Staples remembered everything about the life belt and quoted to his mother the number. It was his mother's personal code affixed to every item she was responsible for approving, including the life belt that saved him. 
you never know how what you do in the quietness of your work experience can have such a powerful impact upon others, whether years to come or those that are quietly observing you and wondering, how do I go about coping with my work experience and need an incredible model, an alternative to the counterfeits of idleness in this culture in which we live that has violated the 6-1 principle of work slash rest and introduce idleness to work and then wonder why they're idling in their rest and finding a lack of productivity in either at this point. They have sought to vacate what God has sought to vocate, you see. And now you and I look very carefully at what Paul is writing at this point. And we see that we find our model in the Godhead, the one who said it is finished with regard to creation, and the second member of the Trinity who said it is finished in relationship to redemption. And now this confronts this culture. So there is your very, very first of the two guidelines. The God's guidelines for a biblical work ethic address the idleness among us. And you just saw it in verse 11 and verse 12. Now, once you and I have established that, then we take a deep breath because what Paul does at this point is he's so realistic. He doesn't cast this wide-ranging blanket and blame everybody. And so now he looks carefully at the people, and he says in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Here's the counterpoint. That second of all, God's guidelines for a biblical work ethic address the weariness among us. Now here's the issue. The issue is this that those that are producing and producing and producing can become cynical towards those who are idling and idling and idling. This is true in our culture as well. And so now, as one time I was driving down the street and hopped in a car with a police officer, a friend, and we were making some rounds together. It was my off day, and he was on duty, but he had worked this out with his supervisor. He And I noticed that off in the corner of a particular street years ago, there were a group of men standing together, and they were idling. And I heard him whisper, trouble. And so a few minutes later, he found a different way to come about that whole intersection, and there they were again, and they were idling. And as he was processing what was happening at this point, my mind was thinking of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I was thinking about what Ken and Kurt and what Troy were talking about with this whole matter of working quietly and countering this culture of idleness that is now produced for those that are producing this sense of weariness. Why am I having to carry person X, person Y, and person Z who aren't pulling their own weight, you see? And Paul's addressing this. So the second now guideline appears on the screen. God's guidelines for a biblical work ethic address the weariness among us. 
And so as Paul writes this, he would say to you and to me, do you remember what Jesus Christ would say to people who were producing and producing, and they were so tired from all that was taking place? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, listen carefully what comes next. He does not say, and you will find rest for your bodies. Rather, he says, you will find rest for your souls. For what I see in a culture of idleness is that there is a restlessness. And there is a weariness. There is an idleness. And what the biblical principles bring back to the forefront of the way in which we manage our lives to the glory of God is that even when my body is tired out, my soul can be refreshed from the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. You'll find rest for your soul. Are you able to distinguish between tired and weary? When you go to bed and you've been productive during the course of the day and you hit the bed, what you're doing at that point is that you are allowing for the balance to be restored between productivity, of course, and the work and the rest that you need, an equilibrium. But the person whose output continuously exceeds his input finds that he is no longer tired. He or she is weary. My gut feels that some of us this morning are in that state where your output has so exceeded your input. And you wake up, you think tired, you're really waking up weary because the sleep didn't satisfy. Now what you and I have to do is to realize the significance of the balance you see of the work and the rest principles and the input-output principles and the it is finished of creation and the it is finished of redemption and begin to draw from the fact that what we need desperately in this restless world is a soul rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Take a good hard look at where the output and the input of your life experiences at this point. The purpose of our Sundays, in fact, is to produce such input into your souls that there can be a better sense of output into the workplace and create that sense of balance so that we confront the idleness of this culture with a new sense of productivity which is so necessary in this culture. But now what Paul does is this. He says to the person who's experiencing weariness and his output has so exceeded his input, and furthermore, what that person might be thinking is, and what about that guy who's not carrying his weight? She's She's not carrying her load. How do we handle that? Paul says in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, number one, take note of that person. Number two, have nothing to do with him. In other words, do not let this person influence this balance that you and I are talking about at this point. Now, this is not the same degree of sin severity as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
where incest was being permitted within the Corinthian church, the Greek culture there as well. Rather, what he's saying is this type of person needs to be marginalized so that he nor she influences and affects the mindset of the culture of work within the congregation. Don't let them become an influencer. Purpose that he may be ashamed. In verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And when you and I begin to approach this way, the work that God has set before us, and do it in a quiet way as my athletic friends were asking, we can restore and replenish people who are so wearied where the output has exceeded the input, but at the same time address those whose input exceeds the output and become consumers of biblical truths rather than producers in the way in which they live their lives. New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. The late Dr. Peter Marshall, he was an eloquent speaker. I remember Pam and I were walking through the sanctuary years ago in Washington, D.C., and I was thinking about the Scotsman who not only had pastored that church but been simultaneously chaplain of the Senate. He told the story of the keeper of the spring, a quiet forest dweller who lived high above an Austrian village along the eastern slopes of the Alps. The old man had been hired by a young town council to clear away the debris from the pools of water up in the mountain crevices that fed the lovely springs flowing through their town. And with faithful, silent regularity, he patrolled the hills, removing the leaves and branches, wiped away the silt that would otherwise choke and contaminate the fresh flow of water. And by and by, the village became a popular attraction for vacationers, not vocationers, vacationers. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. Mill wheels of various businesses located near the water turned day and night. Farmlands naturally irrigated. The view from restaurants picturesque beyond description but then the years passed. And one evening, the town council met for its semi-annual meeting. And as they reviewed the budget, one man's eye caught the salary figure being paid the obscure keeper of the spring. And said the keeper of the purse, who's the old man? Why do we keep him year after year? No one ever sees him. He's so quiet. Nobody even hears from him. For all we know, the strange ranger of the hills is doing us no good. It's not necessary any longer. And by unanimous vote, they dispensed with the old man's services. Marsha goes on. For several weeks, nothing changed. By early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off, fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of sparkling water. One afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish-brown tint in the spring. A couple of days later, the water was much darker. Within another week, a slimy film covered sections of the water along the banks. Foul odor was soon detected. The mill wheels moved slower. Some finally ground to a halt. Swans left, as did tourists. Clammy fingers of disease, sickness reached deeply into the village. Quickly, the council reconvened 
called a special meeting. Realizing the error in their judgment, they hired back the old keeper of the spring. And within a few weeks, the veritable river of life began to clear up. And the wheels started to turn, and new life returned to the hamlet and the Alps once again. And teachers, you are keepers of the spring. And medical personnel, you are keepers of the spring. And those that work with the hands, you are keepers of the spring. And fathers and mothers and grandparents, you are keepers of the spring. And even when nobody else truly values what you are doing, there is one from above who sent his son into this world to do the work of the Father and die in our place. The one who could say it is finished with regard to creation, the one who said it is finished with regard to redemption, the one who understands work and has brought a sense of balance into a very unbalanced world and refuses to idle, but rather has sent his son to do the work of the Father and cry out, Tadalaste, I it is finished. And so the next time you've got some pro athletes coming your way and they're tired, they're limping as they were, and they're wondering, now, what do I do next? They got their Bibles open, and they ask you, and just what does this mean to work quietly, earn my own living? You smile and you nod, because these are men that do not want to do the counterfeit, idleness in place of work, which would mean then idleness in place of rest. They want to bring it to God and view God as the owner and Lord of all. And when we operate that way, God is sovereign over our lives, and all things bring glory to him and him alone. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we are in a culture of substitutes. Some are more interested in the profit than the product, Others are more interested in idleness than work and then wonder why they can't find rest as a result. I pray then that in all these services, we are known as people who are productive, both in the public and the private spheres of our lives, whether we are affirmed by others or not. Help us to be effective keepers of the springs of life and bring glory to you, not glory to ourselves. May the result be, Father, that others are refreshed and you are honored. We pray your blessing upon each one here now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.